Hey everyone, it's Kevin with the Better Bible Reading Podcast, and welcome to another episode of Teaching Thursdays. If you're listening to this, uh, getting it in your inbox at the time of publish, I want to apologize because this is actually a little bit late from my normal release time, and that is because we had to evacuate for the most recent hurricane. But uh, everything is fine. We're back, settled in. Uh, So my apologies for this coming a little bit late, but I am excited about this episode because I mentioned last week that I was going to start talking about the two most popular interpretation methods for understanding the Bible. And those two are called dispensationalism and covenant theology. These two are opposed to each other. They have very different angles of trying to understand the Bible, but chances are you use one of two of them because they are that widespread in the way that we understand the Bible in interpretation systems, if you will. So today is going to be a bit of an introduction, and this is a series of teachings that I did at my current church several months ago. It was, uh, I believe, a 12-week course that I taught, and this is going to be the very first episode. I'm going to start publishing these as Teaching Thursday episodes because I think it's really valuable for us to understand um, how much this involves us in our everyday Bible reading. So today is going to be kind of a crash course overview of what is called dispensationalism. Now, this is the interpretation method that I disagree with, but it is the most popular one, especially in North America. So I hope that you are ready to listen, take notes, and think through all of this. Here is the latest and greatest episode from the podcast. Thank you for listening and all your support. Enjoy. For those of you who grew up in a kind of a Bible memory context, this will probably be a pretty familiar verse to you. I'll read it for us here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Here's what it says. This is Paul talking to Timothy. He says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. While it is a good thing that we've learned covenant theology and that we teach that, um, it is somewhat of an anomaly uh, in this cultural context that we're in, especially in kind of the Bible Belt uh, region. Now, that may not be the case if you're living in Europe or somewhere that's uh, kind of dominated with uh, Reformed churches, because then you, you would have the anomaly being dispensational teaching. But since that's not the case here, I thought it would be good to not just talk about what we believe, but talk about some of the competing views, if you will, um, how somebody kind of maps out the Bible and teaches it as a theological system. And that will become apparent uh, in the weeks to come. So basically what I'm saying is, Because we live in a dispensational culture, number one, you may not even know what that means. And that's perfectly fine because that's why we're doing this. And number two, if you have come from that context, you may not understand just to what degree the dispensational worldview. So that would be the view of God, the view of the way history plays out, how much that kind of permeates our culture so much so that we almost subconsciously think that way. And I think it's important that we think through that so that we can be sure that we have a, a God-centered view and, and a biblically faithful view of the world and the role of the church. So this morning is going to be kind of an introduction to all of this. But I wanted to start out with this verse because I think it's clear here that what Paul is interested in in teaching not only to Timothy, but to all of us who read this, is that there is an absolutely crucial element of the Christian life as it relates to studying the Bible. So what he says there, 
rightly handling the word of truth. Some translations would say rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, In that opening phrase, Paul says, do your best. And then some older translations would say, study to show thyself approved. A workman who need not to be ashamed. So in that charge, we have kind of a few different things for us as it relates to the study and the reading and the comprehension of the Bible. Number one, when it comes to studying the Bible, we have to do our best. We have to be very intentional about approaching the scriptures and reading them. We can't just read the Bible as, as a novel, as kind of a casual experience and hope to uncover all the truths and treasures that the Lord has given us to find in that. So it has to be a faithful and uh, purposeful effort. Do your best. And then secondly, <clears throat> there's the charge that the word of truth is to be something that is rightly handled. Now again, like I said, some other translations would say rightly divided. That doesn't mean pitting the scriptures against itself, dividing it against itself, like Jesus says that a house divided cannot stand. That's not the kind of division we're talking about. But what we're talking about is when we read the Bible, I think it's pretty clear that the book of Revelation is not necessarily the same as reading the book of Exodus. The Psalms are not the same as reading the Gospel of John. There's different genre elements. There's different ways of communication. That's not to say that any of it is less true than the other, but it's to say that there's different elements, different communication devices that the Lord gives to us in his word. And as we read it, we are to responsibly handle every aspect of it. So we rightly handle the word of truth. And in that we would admit or confess that it is indeed the word of truth, not the word of opinion, not kind of a clay mold that we take and we get to rightly handle it and bend it and twist it and manipulate it into what we want, but we come up underneath it because it is the word of truth. It is objective. It is what we submit ourselves to, not the other way around. So as it comes to studying the Bible, it's important that we think in our minds that how we approach the Bible and how we kind of catalog it in our minds, if you will, it matters. And that's what Paul's getting at here in 2 Timothy 2.15. And the way that we do that and the way that the church historically has done that is the development of theological systems. Now, you don't have to be an academic for that to be the case for any of you, because unless you have such a forgetfulness that you don't remember anything day in and day out of when you read the Bible. In other words, unless you read the Bible one day and entirely forget your experience the next day, it goes to show that the next day you go to the Bible, you are bringing with you, regardless of how much you've retained or not, you're bringing with you some truth or some reality of God the next time you read. And then the next time you read, you're doing the same thing. So in your mind, as you read the Bible, you're kind of bringing this bag with you, this luggage bag, and it may get bigger and bigger and bigger as you move on, but you're bringing with you what we would call presuppositions about God, about His Word, So I'll give you a prime example. If I say John 3.16 to you right now, I would imagine some kind of mentality forms in, in your mind about that. Now, why is that? Well, it's because you've read it before, you've heard it before, and now your mind is kind of calling to memory whatever kind of experience, whatever kind of reading you've had in that prior to. That's what we're talking about. So as we read the Bible day in and day out, as we study it, we begin to, even if we're not academics, we're forming some kind of system, some kind of memory bank, some kind of logical flow of what we read to the next time we read. Now, that would be also called not only presuppositions, but biases. Now, that has a negative connotation, which doesn't necessarily have to be the case. 
but at the same time, it is a reality for us. If I have been convinced by Scripture that somebody cannot lose their salvation who is indeed a Christian, then the next time that I go to the Bible and somebody mentions to me some verse that seems to indicate or might indicate that somebody can lose their salvation, I'm going to approach that with some kind of bias because I've already settled it in my mind that the Bible teaches you can't. Now, again, that's not bad because if we're going to ever learn the Bible, we have to come to accept something that it says. We can't be so passive and disengaged with the word that we learn point A one day and then we overthrow point A for point B the next day and then we overthrow all of that for point In other words, we'll never learn anything because we'll kind of reinvent our theology every time we read the Bible. And that's not how we learn. We learn by gathering and storing information. And so because God's word is truth, we can be assured that what we come to understand about it, if we understand it rightly, is going to be consistent and unified. In other words, God is not going to say one thing on Monday and then contradict himself on Thursday. Because God does not lie, neither does his word, because his word is truth. So as we read his word, there's going to be a logic to it. There's going to be unified conclusions that we can gather about it as God reveals himself and the truth of his word. Now, what does that boil down to, historically speaking? It boils down to what we would call the formation of confessions or statements of faith. And almost every church, I say almost every church because sadly some churches almost don't even have anything anymore. But almost every church has some kind of confession of faith. And what is that? What is a confession of faith? What is a statement of faith? Well, in short, it's the public declaration of what is happening in all of our minds as we read scriptures. In other words, here's the conclusions we've come to concerning God. Here's the conclusions we've come to concerning salvation. And regardless of what you read and where you read, these are going to hold true regardless. Regardless of the genre, regardless of the context, these things are true. They are not going to contradict themselves. So, And, that, and that's what's happening in confessions of faith and statements of faith. Now today... Although there are tons of different kinds of confessions, there are tons of statements of faith, especially churches who would be non-denominational and they would kind of make their own from scratch. Regardless of all that, it all boils down to two systems, two theological systems that are accepted uh, throughout all all of church history, really. And those would be dispensational theology and covenant theology. Regardless of denomination, regardless of cultural context, a church is going to, one way or another, fit into one of those. There could be some variation in that, but by and large, a church is going to either be dispensational or covenant theology. I would say that Catholics historically would be covenantal in their theology. Now... Roman Catholicism, everybody, I think, would agree that that has kind of moved into a distortion of the gospel. But even even when we think about covenant theology, the most important aspect of it as it relates to Reformed theology is that it is theology reformed, not theology invented. What I mean by that is Reformed theology is reforming it back to its roots not revolutionizing it into something new. So historic Catholic theology, which would be what we accept in the Nicene Creed and things like that, historic Catholic faith would be covenant theology in, in, its, in its roots. So, and, and thank you for asking that question because I do want to say the whole reason that I'm trying to do this is to help us settle some things in our minds. This will kind of be for the next six weeks or so, I would guess. Um, and like I said, today is kind of an overview. But this is a Bible study, so we are going to be studying through the Scriptures, um, number one, to be more firm in, in how and why we would say that we are uh, covenantal in our theological system and why 
dispensationalism doesn't mesh with that. But the whole reason I'm doing this is to answer questions. So please, if you do have questions, I absolutely welcome you to ask them. So many of us, like myself, uh, I would be a first-generational Presbyterian. Um, I didn't grow up in a Presbyterian context. I'm interested to ask, how many of you are first- or second-generation Presbyterians? How many of you did not grow up in a Presbyterian context? Okay, that's what I thought, the vast majority. Yeah, absolutely. So it matters that we think through this. It matters that we become uh, familiar with these two systems because they are systems. They're not nuances. Yeah, go ahead. Um, just, for the court, just for the class, you, you explained what reform was. Can you give us a definition of dispensation? So... There, there are three particular things that I, that I think uh, really stand the test of time, regardless of what variety, because we're going to get into there are actually multiple varieties of dispensationalism. But I would say most uh, theologians who, for example, um, like, for example, like me, I, I go to Moody Bible Institute online right now, which is a dispensational school in a lot of ways. <clears throat> and our official Moody Handbook of Theology, um, the author of that, first of all, does the same thing that Brother Sam was saying. He points back to men like Augustine and others and say, see, these are all dispensationalists. But in that sense, the only point that's being made as defining somebody as a dispensationalist is that God works from the time of Adam to the eternal state, God works in different dispensations or different economies of government over time. So, for example, a dispensationalist would say something very different was happening in the life of Adam and Eve than the life of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. And something very different was happening for them than the church in the book of Acts. So, in other words, it's the categorization of time frames throughout history. Now, there are some pretty important uh, varieties of that, but just very plainly speaking, somebody who's a dispensationalist in the very basic sense would say that God works in different ways in different periods of time throughout the history of the world. So that would be a very basic level there's a lot more to it, but that's the basic level of that. Um, but dispensationalism as an actual system, let's say in the South here, for example, you're going to see dispensationalism <clears throat> by and large in most Baptist churches, in most Pentecostal churches, in most Methodist churches, or at least a good amount of them. I would say probably the main two would be Baptist and Pentecostal, and then I'll put kind of a slash there and say and non-denominational churches as well. And, and we'll see why. Because the further you take the system to its logical conclusion, you come to a fork in the road sooner or later, which means that regardless of how extreme or not extreme you are, you're going to end up being a dispensationalist or you're going to be covenantal in your theological system so and that matters because i mean what do you pass every single morning on your way to this church baptist churches methodist churches pentecostal churches everywhere on every street corner here in the south and in the bible belt so what that means is dispensationalism as a system is the staple food of the america that we live in in our context in our culture so that's what i mean Covenant theology in a dispensational culture. I don't know how many of you have tried to have theological conversations with brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ who don't go to this church. And they're normally very different conversations than what you would have with one another here at this church. Why is that? Well, it's because we have different theological systems in our minds when we think about the Bible and think about mankind. So the varieties of dispensationalism, like I said, there are varieties to it. There are so many varieties 
that there are almost as many varieties of dispensationalism as there are denominations who hold to it. So there are <clears throat> kind of classic dispensationalism, which will be what we're really talking about here for our intents and purposes. There's yeah, go ahead. Another question. Not, not that I can be pretty slow. Actually, yeah. quite slow. <laughs> <laughs> when you say God handled Adam differently than Moses and differently than the book of Acts, what exactly do you mean by handled or made decisions? What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah. Um, it would be... Um, God gives a particular command or instruction. There is a response by the individual or the nation or whatever. And then there is a judgment slash blessing dichotomy that's happening in whether somebody obeys or disobeys. So are you speaking of the Old Testament? I'm speaking of the whole. Now, now this isn't what I'm advocating this is what the dispensational system says so in other words an extreme side of this would be to say that there are different ways of salvation throughout the course of human history because of the expansiveness or the limitation to how much god reveals about himself and the plan of salvation over time now, that, now that's taking it to its kind of extreme end because most dispensationalists, at least nowadays, wouldn't say that there are different ways of salvation necessarily. They would normally just say that, like for us, for example, we don't, we don't take bulls and rams and offer them on, on the altar today. Why is that? Because we know that something definitive has happened for that not to be the case anymore. But there's, at least as I have read and studied and understood the the system, there seems to be more importance and emphasis placed on the, the level of obedience in the way that God worked in the Old Testament and then and, and we'll see this because one of the things about dispensationalism is the church age to dispensationalism didn't didn't begin until the book of acts and the church is its own unique entity in the timeline of how god works and that that'll be more that that'll make more sense as we go but in other words god was doing something very different in the old testament than he's doing right now and even god is doing something very different than what he's going to do in the future in the system so Classic <clears throat> classic dispensationalism, progressive dispensationalism, hyper-dispensationalism, new covenant theology, which is kind of the, the newest theology on the block, if you will. What new covenant theology is, is let's give dispensationalism a hug, let's give new covenant theology a hug, let's have them marry each other, and then we'll call their child new covenant theology. That's kind of how that is expressed. So it's like kind of taking two, two sides together and coming up with, with something, which I'm categorizing it as dispensationalism because it still carries a lot of uh, teachings from that. Then you have Calvinistic dispensationalism and non-Calvinistic or Arminian dispensationalism. So as you see, there's a lot of varieties of this. There's a lot of different ways that this is explained and agreed to or not agreed to, depending. <clears throat> and then you also have pop culture dispensationalism. Now, that's my, that's my own term. This isn't a technical term. You're not going to find this in, in a, a theology book or anything like that. But I would, I would categorize pop culture dispensationalism as what you see with a lot of televangelists. I would say all prosperity gospel teachers teach some kind of dispensationalism and then you have the, the academic societies that teach this which probably the prime example would be uh, Dallas Theological Seminary which was a seminary made for the sole purpose of teaching dispensationalism so there's a lot of varieties but now we're getting to really uh, your initial question so what is 
dispensationalism. What is the definition of it? What's the main tenets of it? And like I said, just plainly, it means that God works in different dispensations throughout the course of time. Sometimes there are more, sometimes there are less, but most of the time there are agreed to be seven distinct dispensations. That would be what they would say, innocence, which is the time that God created man up until the time that the fall occurred. And you have conscience, which is basically right after uh, Adam and Eve fell. So they, they would categorize it from happening from Genesis 4 until Genesis 8.14, so leading up to the time of Noah. Government, Genesis 8 to 11 roughly, that's leading up to the time of Abraham. Promise, Genesis 11 to Exodus 18, so right before Moses gives the law to the Israelites. Then you have the Mosaic law, Exodus 19 all the way to Acts 126. Then you have the dispensation of grace, which is Acts 2 all the way to Revelation 19, right before Revelation chapter 20. And then their final one, the millennium, which is Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Now, I have read from some that they do allow for some kind of overlap happening. But historically speaking, these have normally been seen as very clear points of discontinuity. So God is doing something absolutely unique to this situation, then to this situation, then to this situation. And there are different stipulations. There's different ways that God's people are supposed to live in all of these. That's kind of the idea that we're, that we're getting at. <clears throat> so that's kind of a, a rough definition. Now, I see four main <clears throat> distinctions or tenets of dispensationalism. First and foremost, I would say the most important thing to get in dispensational theology is that dispensational theology sees an absolute distinction between Israel and the church. That's the most important thing for any of us to understand. In dispensational theology, the church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. The church does not become Israel. That is plain and clear in dispensational theology. Now, if you've been, uh, number one, raised in a Presbyterian context, or number two, if you've just been paying attention Uh, whether you went through the inquirers class with Pastor Jesse or if you were in here when we previously went through the confession of faith ourselves, uh, it becomes very clear very soon and very immediate that that is not the way that we understand the Bible in covenant theology. So the church and Israel in dispensationalism are two distinct groups entirely. Uh, Not only that... The church is kind of a parenthesis to God's overall story. The church, basically, according to dispensational theology, starts in Acts and ends right before the millennium in Revelation. So what that means is the Bible, by and large, according to dispensational theology, is telling a story about God and Israel. And when Jesus came, he offered Israel a physical kingdom And Israel rejected the physical kingdom. So then God put in, if you will, a a plan B or or an intermission plan here where God deals with the church who is the Gentiles. Now, this is all, again, this is dispensational teaching. This is not Kevin teaching. I want to make that clear. I'm not trying to confuse anybody. But it's so important that we understand the system before we start throwing darts at it or anything like that. We want to understand what's being said. And basically, the way that I would equate it is you go to a play, there's a a compelling storyline, and it leads up to this big climax, and all of a sudden the curtains close, and they say, hey, it's an intermission. Uh, I'd like to make some announcements to you. And they start telling you whatever it is that they tell you, and that would be kind of the church age. 
And then they get done telling the announcements, and the curtains open back up, and they go back to the play. That's, that's kind of how dispensationalism sees the course of history. The play is God's story with Israel. The church is the intermission. And then you go back to the time with, with Israel for the rest of the play. That's kind of how they see it um, unfold. Are they referring to Israel as national physical Israel? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and a part, a part of this comes from the, the second aspect of dispensationalism, which is their their hermeneutic or their interpretation of scripture is put it this way hard line unapologetically literal that's another very important part of the whole system so let, I'll put it this way they they would say that because the old testament promises to Israel Israel were literal the fulfillment of those promises most importantly the land that conversation a lot must be literal in nature and literal to the Jewish race and therefore time and space must allow for these promises to be fulfilled and that's why number one they see the millennium as literal a literal 1,000 year reign on earth and that 1,000 year reign is the time frame that all those literal promises are going to be given to ethnic Israel the church doesn't matter at that point because the church is raptured out of the picture and then it's back to literal ethnic Israel. That is a very, very important aspect of their system. Now this one, if I can be honest, made me very mad when I, when I read this. Uh, I, I felt that it was a little bit of kind of a backhand to re- Reformed theology because... Um, they um, kind of limit it to three tenets of, of dispensationalism. I added a fourth because I think that there is a fourth. But their third one is the centrality of the glory of God. Now, this very much depends on the Israel church distinction. Okay, So they kind of lay a charge against covenant theology because in their mind, covenant theology teaches that the church replaces Israel. So Israel, you lost your chance. Now the church gets everything that you were supposed to get. And because of that, we suddenly see everything in the Bible revolving around salvation. And therefore, we're man-centered because we see everything revolving around salvation of man. Dispensationalists don't see it that way. God's glory doesn't always have to relate to man's salvation. God's doing different things at different times. Therefore, they are the true system that seeks after God and his glory, not the glory of man. Now, when I read that, I got very mad because, number one, anybody, what is the very first catechism question and answer in our short catechism? What is the chief And what is the answer? Right, so we absolutely do not teach anything other than the fact that God's glory is the focal point of our existence, not man. But in the dispensational view, because we have, in their mind, an obscured view of the church, we make everything point to the church and salvation, therefore we must be man-centered. And that's kind of the logic of it. Now, it wasn't necessarily written um, in a backhanded way necessarily, but because I adamantly disagree with that, I got a little mad when I read it. So, there's that. But I think, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that there is a fourth point, we've talked about this a little bit, is that all three of those depend on their end times view Incorporating the whole system. So what that means is they have a very linear timeline. Now for dispensationalists, Revelation is nothing more than a linear timeline. Doesn't matter the symbolism. It is a point A to point B book. Therefore, they see rapture followed by tribulation, followed by new earthly temple, followed by millennium as irreplaceable elements of the whole system. So much so that, in my mind, 
if one of these can be disproven, it basically collapses the entire system. Because, again, it's a logical, linear system. It kind of moves from point A is true. Because point A is true, we come to point B conclusion. Because point A and point B are together, it leads to a future point C, and it kind of moves in that way. So if one of these can be shown to be not accurate in the way the Bible teaches, whether it be the way the millennium takes place, whether or not there is a rapture, whether or not it's before or after the um, time of trouble or time of persecution or tribulation, if any of that can be disproven or shown to be something other than what the Bible actually teaches, it really does kind of collapse the whole system. And like Brother Sam was saying, that's why in dispensational theology... Because it all moves in a linear movement of time. That's why all the emphasis now is on future end of the world crisis stuff. And everything's, like you said, everything's focused in the Middle East. Everything's focused at national Israel as a place and as a people. And everything is dependent upon the way that all that plays out. And that's a very important aspect of it. I'd like to have you turn your Bible really quick to... The book of Ephesians, chapter 4. If somebody would be so kind as to read Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. As soon as you get there, please feel free to read it. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. So as that relates to this whole study, I think maybe a good way to look at it in terms of us as studiers and readers of the Bible, um, when Paul and Silas are in Thessalonica, they move to Berea, and it says that when they went there, that the Bereans took what Paul was teaching, and it says this, that the Jews there in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. We as Christians, as Brother Kevin read there, are supposed to be maturing and growing up in terms of doctrine. And that means that as we hear a doctrine, a truth about God, a system regarding God and how he works, we have to not be taken by that and like like a shrub blowing in the wind, just... We get overtaken by this, and then the next thing comes around, and then we get we catch catch wind of that, and then we're blown this way, and then in, in other words, we are supposed to be firm and planted as we grow. We're supposed to have deep roots so that we can not be overtaken by this, that, and everything else as it relates to doctrine. And how do we do that? Well, it goes back to what I initially said: because God is true. His word will not contradict itself. What God tells us is verifiable throughout the Bible. You will not come across contradictions and disunity as it relates to what God says to us. Because of that, we, just like the Bereans, when we hear something, we should not immediately cast it aside in the way of saying, well, those are those stupid dispensationalists and what they believe and they're all idiots. We shouldn't do that. We should do what? We should look to the scriptures, examine them to see whether or not these things are so. Now that's a fascinating thing because they were doing that to who? They were doing it to Paul. Imagine if Paul came here and started preaching to us in person and Paul's, you know, up here giving the class about covenant theology. And you all just open your Bibles and, you know, kind of look at them and size them up and see, let's see if you're telling the truth or not. You know, but, but that's how we should be, not in a disrespectful way, but because we have such a respect for God and what he says. We believe what he says and what he communicates to us is true, verifiable, logical, and unified. So that should be the way that we approach it. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time left, so I won't bore you with all of the historical developments 
of this because I'd like to get through this introductory uh, lesson here and, and move on to looking at individual teachings in the weeks to come. Uh, but just for the sake of uh, just kind of a flyby analysis here, um, the name John Nelson Darby is really important in dispensationalism in the 19th century uh, because he began to really promote this idea of dispensations in history. Now that on its own is not necessarily bad because we don't deny the reality that things are not the exact same right now as they were in the time of Moses and the Israelites, right? We don't, we don't, there, there's not a, an exact, you know, correlation between the two, but we want to be sure that we're saying we do not believe that God is doing something utterly different right now than what he was doing. In other words, he had a completely different plan then versus now. That's not the case. So John Nelson Darby starts to promote this uh, very heavily, both in England and in the Americas. Uh, the Schofield Reference Bible comes out in the beginning of the, 19, I think it was 1909 is when it came out. And that got very wide circulation um, because Schofield uh, started to do kind of Bible conferences So he became involved with the likes of Dwight L. Moody, who, again, like I said, I am um, a student with Moody Bible Institute. Um, That is a dispensational school in a lot of ways. Um, It's not a terrible school. I don't want to say that, uh, but it is a dispensational school. So you can kind of see the beginning uh, formings of this happening. And then um, as we move to a little bit further in the 1900s, you have the the kind of liberal theology or modernism versus the fundamentalist debate. If any of you have, have read up on any of that with the history of Princeton Seminary and that kind of being given over to a modern way of thinking, denying the supernatural, um, and then a professor by the name of J. Gresham Machen left there, started Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and he was aided in a lot of ways by the fundamentalists. Now, the fundamentalists had some problems in his mind. First of all, they were the dispensationalists. But one thing that they did have that he applauded and was glad to lock arms with them was the fact that they believed the Bible to be true and without error. That was not the case with the modern way of thinking at that time and obviously in a lot of our denominations now that have been completely given over to Denying the supernatural, denying Jesus' atonement, those kind of things. That, that all kind of started at that time. And it was really the, this dispensationalist or the fundamentalist that really fought to see that that did not dominate the Christian world in the United States especially. But because of that, it also, the fundamentalism uh, system, which I'll put a kind of a slash there and say and the dispensational system, um, got widespread in America. So when you think about the Bible Belt in general, it's a dispensational belt. There's a big D on the buckle of the Bible Belt. And you think about the kind of the more modern names that you've heard, probably Hal Lindsey, John Hagee, the Left Behind books, Televangelist, nowadays David Jeremiah, even, even John MacArthur is a variety of dispensationalism. Like I said, Moody Bible Institute and Dallas Theological Seminary. You compact the timeline of history to all of these and it becomes very clear how this came to be such a huge system. But because it's a huge system, it is the culture that we live in by and large as it relates to America. Now my own life, my experience was dispensationalism in the church I grew up in, a Baptist church. And so much so, because it was so widespread, it wasn't taught so much as it was assumed. I don't know if that's been your experience, but the way I would explain that is theology in a vacuum. When we learn about God and we're just thrown assumptions because, well, this is the system, this is how it was taught to me, this is how I'll teach it to you. In other words, I was never even aware of the fact that there was anything other than 
dispensationalism. And you can kind of see all the elements, as I've talked about our own country in the Bible Belt, how that's compacted um, and, and happened in that way throughout the, the course of time. Um, and the reason that this is a big deal is because dispensationalism, we don't want to say that something is wrong just because it's new or something is right just because it's old. But it is very important to understand that dispensationalism is kind of a matured system, is relatively new. In other words, dispensationalism as a comprehensive system didn't really come about until the late 1800s. If you think about that now, where we're at with the church, 2,000 plus years after the death and resurrection of Christ, you have... Basically, the first 1,800 years, this was nowhere to be found, and then all of a sudden it surfaces, not only surfaces, but is the view, its massive view of Christianity. And what we want to do is not point fingers, not cast it aside immediately, but study the scriptures to see if it is so or not. And that's kind of what this study is going to be throughout the time that we're together. I want to leave you with one more verse, Philippians, if you can turn there, Philippians 1, verse 9. Paul says to the Philippians, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. This is kind of a life verse for me, if you want to use that phrase, Um, especially as it comes to studying. Because the worst thing you can do is have all the knowledge in the world with no discernment and no love. The the scriptures teach that if that's the case for us, then we're nothing more than just puffed up, prideful people. Um, Unfortunately, in Reformed theology, in covenant theology, it's the case that sometimes we're seen as the most arrogant people there are. Because we think we finally have solved all the theological problems and... We kind of raise our noses at anybody that's not just like us. And I want to, again, tell you that the context of this study is Philippians 1.9. Not Satan in the garden in Genesis 3, I know better than you do. It's so important that we want to mimic Christ and not the serpent. It's so important that we understand that because it does us no good to know rightly, theologically, just like the demons do, but have no love or no saving faith. So important that we understand that as our foundation studying through this. And like I said, we want to have a sincere understanding of the view of our neighbors. I'm not laying the claim that dispensationalists are not Christians. Please do not hear me say that. Truth matters because God's word is truth. It's going to be unified. And that means we must pursue the truth unwaveringly. We don't want to slander our brothers and sisters that understand things in a much different way than we do. But first and foremost, we want to understand what it is that they're saying. That was the purpose of this morning. And it will be the purpose in all of our uh, lessons from, from here on out. Um, and you see this happen a lot. For example, the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. A lot of times it turns into a, a slander fest where we just beat each other up with proof text, proof text, proof text. And it turns into a very unfruitful conversation, if you even want to call it a conversation. That's not what we want to do. That's, what, that's not what we should do because because of the culture we live in, is a 100% possibility that you have friends, you have family members, you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are dispensationalists in their view. We're studying this, first of all, so we can come to a confident understanding of our view of the Bible and the system of theology, the system of what it tells us about God, how that communicates to us We want to have confidence in that, but we also want to foster helpful and healthy conversations with others. 
One of the one of my favorite things um, in my classes at Moody is that it's an online uh, bachelor's program, uh, but we're required to have uh, constant dialogue with each other. And um, what happens with that is we're supposed to offer helpful critique to one another when we don't see things eye to eye. And I've, I've been doing that for about a year and a half now, and it is so helpful that we learn the art of disagreeing in love, first of all, and to argue um, for truth, because that's what it's about. If we don't care about truth, then you have your view, I have my view, everybody's fine, let's go on about our days, but we should care about the truth and what God says to us. And so, as we leave out of here, biases do exist. We do carry assertions about God with us, but it must always be put into check with what the Bible actually says, not with what I've always heard or, well, this is where I go to church, so this is what I believe. We have to have confidence that what the Bible says is what we believe. Does anybody have any closing questions before we close out here? All right, thank you so much for your time. Let's pray. Well, that wraps things up for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to that, and I hope that you have learned a lot about how much it really does matter that we think through the way that we are interpreting and understanding the Bible. You may have been using a method all along and didn't even realize it or didn't even realize that you had been taught what is a formal and official method of Bible interpretation. But hopefully that's whet your appetite just a bit about this massive topic, and I look forward to upcoming episodes being published all about this on our Teaching Thursday weeks. But enjoy the rest of your day or evening, whatever time it is that you've been listening to this. And once again, I just want to throw a shout out to all of you that have consistently been downloading these episodes because the numbers are rising more and more each and every week. And that makes me very excited as someone publishing and bringing this content to you. If you have any requests for me, please share them. You can go to betterbiblereading.com forward slash ask or forward slash questions, whatever you desire. You can submit a topic that you'd like me to cover on an upcoming episode or a written blog article. I'd be happy to do that for you. And you can also take advantage of free training I'm offering over on the website of how to study a book of the Bible. And you can find that on the homepage or by going to betterbiblereading.com forward slash free training. Please take advantage of those. And I look forward to hearing back from all of you real soon.